Welcome in episode 247 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. This is a highlight episode where I went all the way back to the beginning and pulled the main topic discussion between Mike and I, which was super fun nearly five years ago um, to see um, how our thoughts were different and maybe the same as they are now and what I'm still continuing to practice and I'm sure Mike would say uh, as well. So the topics cover everything from chops versus groove and independence, uh, creativity, drum shells, um, so hope you enjoy this, and then uh, we'll see you next week. As far as our main topic for today, chops versus groove, let's get into that. You know, what are your initial thoughts when you hear words like chops and grooves? You know, what do, what do those each mean to you? You know, for me, chops are like solo ideas. Um, that's It's show-off-y time, chops. Uh, but that said, I think you can have some chopsy grooves so it for me to define the two it's really difficult a groove is something that is a consistent pattern i would say is probably my definition right and a chop is something more like a embellishment or a solo yeah i i I think you know for me growing up chops to me was the collection of skill sets that you had so when i would say you know that guy's got chops. I was sometimes I was referring to that guy's got jazz chops. That guy's got rock chops. But it was a collection of the skill set they had that made me think they had chops. And you're right. And it 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 lent itself to showing off. And it was definitely like I definitely think of I put you know fills and licks and all those into that chop category. Hand speed, foot speed, independence, and then grooves. Definitely for me was always something that made you kind of bob your head. Like you said, it had that repeated pattern, or at least a repeat a repeatable feel to it, and it allowed other people to join in. And I think when I think about chops, like if I think you know Mike Dawson's chopping up, I don't think of me as a bass player being able to jump in with it. But when I think like somebody's laying down a groove, it allows me to predict where things are headed, and I can kind of be a part of it. You know? Mm. Yeah, I like that. Well, then we're gonna keep it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yeah, I guess so, you're right. I mean, I'm thinking back. Chops more is about your overall skill set. But. Yeah, and, and then I think it's almost like the word dude, where it can be used a, a million different ways. And so sometimes it's like people will ask me, hey, can you show me that chop? Like it became a singular thing. Um, and then sometimes, you know, when we talk about great drummers, like, yeah, he's got chops. So, um, but yeah, I, th- I think it's definitely something where chops sometimes can be misused, especially in today's social media thing where everyone wants chops, 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 and they don't take the time to realize you're not going to be really allowed to use hardly any of this stuff unless you're in uh, a highly improvised fusion setting. But in your pop gig, you're not going to be able to drop the heat on this 30-second note crossover double bass polyrhythmic chop. It's, right. you know, you know it's just coming, over. Growing up, I think we I defined it more as technique. The word yeah. chops never came into play until... I started hearing about gospel chops and things like that. For me, right. it was always sure. just technique. I had you have double bass technique, or you have okay. jazz technique. So sure. those are interchangeable terms in my world. Who was the first drummer that you remember when you were growing up that had chops to you, or had you know, kind of like a full arsenal of technique? Uh, Will Calhoun. He would probably oh. be number one when I huh. heard. The first Living Color record, it was like, that drummer is doing a lot of stuff. I don't know what he's doing. I need to figure it out. (laughs) 
I need to figure it out right away, and I'm going to go ahead and try to play all of Vernon Reed's solos on my toms. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, no, Will was definitely up there. I think for me, the first one was Billy Cobham, just because my father gave me the record uh, Spectrum. And he was like, if you want to learn drumming, this is drumming. And, you know, he gave me that and I think uh, something by Cream that had mm. the, some long Ginger Baker solo on it. But yeah. I remember that thinking, oh, well, I can't. It's not something where I can dissect it. Kind of like the Will Calhoun thing. Even if I knew what this person was playing, it wouldn't help because I don't have enough drumming facility to copy this, mm-hmm. you know. So I had to build up my chops or my overall technique on the instrument. Um, I used to play along to Vivid with what, one of those little Sears kits with like a 16-inch bass drum and a 10-inch no and a splash <laughs> cymbal. That's all yeah. I had. Really? Yeah, and I thought oh, I did all, so that, cool. all that stuff between the ride bell and the hi-hat. I thought it was oh, all yeah, just yeah. on the ride. So I was playing all that stuff with one hand. So it was just, shut up. <laughs> yeah. so, so you not knowing what Will was actually doing and you not having YouTube allowed you to become a better drummer because you had to I think we all did that I mean I had to play one by Metallica between my floor tom and my bass drum because I couldn't afford a double bass pedal so right. um, it pushed me into an area that I wouldn't have been going into if I would have had YouTube and I would have seen how it was done um, I honestly didn't really know anything about double bass at that time because I was just a kid you know um, so who are like do you have any guys right now that in the chop world you think kind of have you know, like something where you really enjoy their improvisations, their show, you know, the time where they're showing off. Um, you know what? There's a couple guys. Uh, Elon Rubin, I think, has got a, an incredible yeah. combination of like flawless technique and, and musicality and power. He's kind of got it all for me. Um, and there's always Vinny Cayuta. He, he never, yeah. I still can't figure out what he's, I've been listening to him for 25 years. I still can't figure out what he's doing. Um, that's so awesome and you know what's crazy is he just never falls out of favor you know i mean he's as popular now as he was 10 years ago as he was 20 years ago yeah i think we're going to be catching him up to him for a lifetime yeah Uh, and then there's one guy i met when i first started the magazine i met ronald bruner jr he was playing with kenny garrett and i'd never had heard someone play that fast before in my life like he was able to go like speed five overdrive and then one more speed it was right. It blew my hair back. Yeah, Ronald's incredible. I saw him play with George Duke at Yoshi's in Oakland, and they did kind of this history of George Duke, you know, um, medley. And watching him go through the entire history of rock and roll music, you know, from kind of classic rock and roll through R and B, through Motown, all the way through George Clinton, or all the George Clinton stuff, and then you know, everything that George Duke did and then going into all the um, Zappa stuff, watching him go through all those styles and not play any of them even remotely the same. That's what actually impressed me because I thought, okay, well, I have drummer buddies that have the facility to play that stuff, but they would still have their own stylistic stamp. They wouldn't sound like a 70s drummer. Mm -hmm. And Ronald actually did. Like, it sounded like the 70s and then it sounded like the 80s, then the 90s. And he really cared about it. And I don't know the guy at all, but I I definitely, that was one of the few times where I thought, wow, man, that's a legitimate musician right there. That's really cool. I think, you know, right now for me, I look at a new world of chops that's happening with guys like Mark Juliana, um, Benny Greb, uh, where it's like, it's not quite as showboaty. It's not quite as in your face. It's more like chops based off of who's got the biggest create 
you know, creative chops? Who's got the most amount of creativity that make you sit there going like, well, wait a minute, I have a four piece kit and I've never even considered doing any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a new world. And, and I mean, there must be some cats cause I'm on the West coast, but there must be some cats. I've never really had a chance to see Ari Honig play. I mean, would you consider him as somebody that's kind of pushing the forefronts of creativity? Yeah. I mean, his chops are, are not about technique. Although his technique is, is ridiculous. He can play quieter than anyone I've ever heard. But his chops are he can he can play actual melodies on the drum set like note wow. for note. That. That's what I mean. It seems like it's kind of endless. There is no, you know, good chops, bad chops. It's just it's just got that you know creative niche to it. I mean, you and I were laughing our rear ends off today about Dave King, and he's another guy yeah. where yeah. it's just a, a creative skill set of chops instead of just a very simple speed and independence type of thing. So, all right, well let's del- uh, let's get into the groove thing. Mm-hmm. So. You know, a groove, like I said, to me is something that multiple people can identify a pulse with, multiple people can identify a feel with, and multiple people can play along with it, unlike a chop that might just be blazing licks all over the kit. So who are some of the guys that really exemplify that for you? Um, I have a duo, Matt Chamberlain and Steve Jordan, I think will Dude. be my two all-time forever till I die favorite groove players. And and then if I go I, back, rock and roll, Josh Freese, still yeah. to this day, I would love to. I love any record he plays on; it just sounds so good. Uh, Al Jackson Jr. from more classic R and B, can't beat him. Um, and then if I go back to my original, it'd be Chad Smith and Marky Ramone. Nice, very nice. Wow, man! And so, were you? Can you tell I, that I I'm more into groove than I am chops? <laughs> yeah, no, you, you definitely just had like, yeah, those ready to go. And, uh, you know, what, what I'm wondering is, were you introduced to drummers because they happened to play in your favorite bands or did you find them as drummers and then learn about their band? Both. So were you into the Ramones? Oh, both, okay. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting. I, I was into the Ramones from the very beginning. That was the day I got my drum set. My brother and I played a Ramones record. We played Road to Ruin. Uh, nice. Which is Marky Ramone's first appearance with the band, and I don't actually like the three albums before that very much. So it okay. is it is definitely Marky Ramone that I like about the Ramones. Same thing with Got Nirvana. It. When I heard Dave Grohl, that was it. When I heard the first record, eh, not so much because he's not on Got it. it. Right. So it's kind of like when I hear a drummer that's powerful and creative and makes me feel something, then I like the band. Yeah. Well, Matt Chamberlain's definitely up there for me. Um, you know, I was uh, always a big fan of kind of artsy female pop. So whatever he was doing, you know, with uh, uh, Tori Amos or Fiona Apple was always incredible, especially the Fiona Apple stuff, because I felt that was Matt actually being allowed to be Matt rather than just being a session player. There was so much percussion in it. You couldn't tell what was percussion and what was drum set on some of that stuff. And I, I mean... That blew me away. His stuff with Critters Buggin' was is still some of my favorite stuff that I listen to, um, you know. And then um, at some point, it was on the internet or something, but there was like a, a thing of album covers, uh, just a collage that Matt had played on, and it just it made you realize that no matter who your favorite drummer is, Matt Chamberlain might be your favorite drummer because he's on all of your favorite albums, whether you know it or not. And Disney movies, he's on Frozen. <laughs> he just it never stops, yeah. man. It just you know, and he's got more Craviato kits than Mr. Craviato, and it's just incredible. And yeah, he's uh, won country music awards and doesn't actually record country music. <laughs> that's so awesome. That's so awesome. Have you ever gotten a chance to interview him or speak to him? 
Yeah, I did. I did his cover story a few years back. We got to hang out uh, at Radio City Music Hall right after a Tori Amos gig. It was amazing. Nice. Um, Good guy. Oh yeah, he's he's one of the most genuine, no BS, uh, caring people you ever could meet. Sometimes awesome. he can be he can have a little bit of a smart aleck attitude, right? Which so do I. So it, we kind of so it works. Right. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, it's great when your uh, heroes kind of live up to the pedestal that you've put them on. I think another you know groove guy for me that never really got credit as a groove guy. Maybe just because it was in such a, a rock setting, but is uh, Mike Borden from Faith No More. Love him. You know, he was just, he was one of those guys where kind of like Bonham and definitely like Abe Cunningham from the Deftones, if I heard the beat, I knew what song it was. And that's not, so I, I looked up to him for his drumming, but I looked up to him even more for his writing because the drum part allowed me to know what song was about to be played. And, you know, when you think about, Aunt Judy coming over to the house and saying, play me a song. I mean, really, how many drum beats can you play where Aunt, besides Wipeout, where Aunt Judy would know what that is? Yeah. And, you know, I feel that Abe Cunningham, I mean, you can play a couple different grooves and everyone goes, oh, digital bath, Deftones. And uh, obviously, same thing with, you know, Bonham. You can play a couple grooves and people know it's Zeppelin. And if people were more familiar with Faith No More, Mike Borden had that thing. Um, and the most impressive thing ever was uh, for a while, probably for like two years, I was a, uh, an, a Yamaha artist. This is a long, long time ago. And I went over to, the, um, to Yamaha in uh, Buena Vista and we were walking around and we went into kind of like a closet near the drum area and there was just a stack of 14-inch die-cast hoops all cracked in half. <laughs> and I was like, dude, who can break a die-cast hoop? And they're like, oh, Mike Borden does like three a week. And I was yeah. like, what? I remember those I was pictures like, of him with like his snare wires like totally shredded. Like, how do you do uh, that? How what a monster, <laughs> man. What a monster. Well, they're, they're putting out a new album, so I'm looking forward to it. All right. So as far as Chops and Groove, I mean, do you have anybody that you can think of you know, off the top of your head that really has a great handle on both? In my opinion, I, I, the first two guys that come to mind would be Steve Gadd and Benny Greb, where mm-hmm. they have great chops, but all of their chops have a pocket to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be Dennis Chambers, Vinny Cayuta for me. Yeah. Ultimate control and, and feel no matter what they played. And they can also slay your head off. Yeah. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's kind of one thing I look for in Chops is, you know, did you did I just lose all of the feeling of what was going on so that you could get your chop in? Or did your chop actually elevate what was happening? And I think I was telling you a couple of weeks ago about, I was listening to Al Jarreau's We're In This Love Together. I was in a parking lot with another drummer that I <laughs> I was like, dude, what are we doing sitting in a parking lot listening to We're In This Love Together? And But I was like, you have to listen to this lick. <laughs> and so we're sitting in the parking lot listening to We're In This Love Together by Al Jarreau. And then, and it's just this, you know, simple swing groove. And then all of a sudden Steve Gadd just like obliterates this lick. And it, it was like, oh my God, that was so cool. And he got away with it. And I can imagine it was, it must've been something in a session where he's like, well, I'll do it. And then they'll cut this out. But it really it really fit the song. It was great. So yeah, Josh Freese. Cool Josh Freese is another. Oh one. yeah, two perfect circle records. I I think oh. it's impossible for anyone to replicate his playing on those records. Dude, that 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 really took rock into a new world because some of the stuff that Tool was doing at the time was a little too complex for the normal listener. And then when Perfect Circle came out, it was more digestible, and it was kind of like the stuff that Sting does with Vinnie where 
it was digestible for the normal person, but the musician could dig deep into it. Yeah. And have you checked yeah. out his playing on the Suicidal Tendencies record, Art of Rebellion? No. He's a young man on that, and he he took that band to a whole new place. I highly recommend it. I mean, he is playing double bass. He's playing fills every other bar, but it grooves like, honestly, like like no Josh Freeze. Yeah, like him. <laughs> well, when I was doing session work um, in my early twenties, it was known that if he was anywhere near the studio you were recording at, you needed to lock the doors because he would walk in and replace you in a second. <laughs> as soon as the producer saw him, be like, "Oh, Josh, why don't you play on these tracks?" And then it was over. So, so our first topic is going to be practice. What was your experiences like? I mean, I know that what, what my experiences were like for practicing, but I mean, was there a time where you started to realize, man, I really actually need to organize my practice? Yeah, actually, probably more the opposite. I was probably okay. too organized. Um, I came up in a very classical trained, so everything I learned was out of method books, and it was reading, and, and it was very structured. So I approached drum set the same way. I got every book I could find. I just played it page to page. Um, and when I was done the book, I was done, and I moved on to the next thing. It wasn't until much later in college that I went back and said, you know what, maybe I should try practicing some records, see what that does. And that was what, for me, was like, whoa, okay, I should have been doing this my entire life. Yeah, I think playing to albums is definitely one of those things that uh, is eye-opening. You know, you can start to play something, and then there's just so many so many levels to it where maybe you're playing the notes correctly but you can't get it to sound the way that person sounded and then trying to get it to sound the way that the drummer sounded on the track opens up the idea that maybe you need to change your drums themselves change the tuning muffle more muffle less you know so i think playing along to albums can really open up a lot of things to people yeah it's pretty much everything is there well i had a method where i would play along to a track until i found something i couldn't do and then i would create a practice routine out of that thing that's a nugget right there. Yeah, that was it. I would just I would try to play along, just play time the first time through, second time try to catch a couple other little things, and there'd always be something a fill or a a rhythmic hit or just the groove itself. I had to break it down and, and spend a couple of days just practicing that one bit. Yeah, man. Well, I think too, like right now we have a lot of people that are using kind of a crutch drumming thing where they always play along to another drummer, but they're trying to learn everything note for note and then move on. And to me, when I was practicing growing up and even still, when I find that little thing in a song that I can't do, like you said, I make a practice routine out of that concept. So I don't try to learn the fill note for note. Um, I kind of learn, okay, what made that fill possible? So my first thought is in that lick, or, or it could even be the groove, what is the overriding subdivision? What is my vertical grid of time that I can you know, sing in my head and it might be 16th note triplets. And then I break it down and think, was it linear or nonlinear? And that's giving me a category. Now now I'm starting to form a category of it's nonlinear 16th note triplet based improvisation that I'm clearly having trouble with. And then I try to think, was it melodic or was it just random showing off? Um, is it possible on my drum set? You know, a lot of times I remember as a kid, I'm sure you had the same thing, but you know, we would listen to Neil Peart and I I don't have that many drums. Right. So I had to think like how am I gonna how am I gonna make this work with my one twelve inch tom and my sixteen inch floor tom, you know? Yeah, I set up anything I could to try to get close to the, the amount of drums. Maybe I whatever. set up both kits. <laughs> yeah, both kits were the same sizes. So I had twelve, twelve, thirteen, thirteen, sixteen, sixteen, and two, you know, and it went uh silver sparkle wine red, silver sparkle wine red. Nice. You know, it was like I had a jugs percussion kit and a West percussion kit. I remember even taping metal rods to cymbal stands so I could get one more cymbal up. (laughs) That's awesome. 
That is, yeah, I, I did, uh, I wanted a 10-inch Tom so bad, and my parents wouldn't get it for me, so I cut the 8 and the 12 off of my Roto Toms, so I j- like with a hacksaw. So I just had the 10 all by itself, put it next to my 12. <laughs> um, yeah, I think with practicing, you know, you definitely have to think of a few things. Th- a few things go into it, which is how long are you going to practice for? And I, I get a lot of questions from students about, you know, how long should I practice? And my, my thought is, well, how long do you have? You know, um, right. yeah. a father of four that has a full-time job doesn't have eight hours a day to play drums. But I do know, I remember talking to Benny Greb when he first had his son, Mo. And I was like, man, you're obsessed with practice. What's your practice routine like now? And he said, it's, it's much better, you know? And I, uh, I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, I, have, I don't have any time to practice. So when I do, it is so unbelievably focused because I mm. only have an hour a day to get in what I used to do in six hours. Um, he's like, so I've kind of streamlined everything. What about your personal practice? I mean, you know, most people, if they haven't seen you play yet, they should know that you're you're an amazing drummer, so you clearly still play the drums. But during the years that you were really growing the fastest as a drummer, what was your practice routine like? Like I said, I, I came up in a classical world, so it was usually split between snare drum technique, either drum line style or classical. Eight to, like I would do that every day. I would warm up, and I would, I would do technique workouts on a pillow. I had a whole, whole bunch of little routines. So I'd do like a half hour on a pillow. I'd do half hour on a pad playing, playing some of my lesson material. And on drum set, I would just go through books in, in the early stages. I would just go straight. I, the New Breed was the first book I ever bought in seventh grade. So I'd, every day I would just torture myself trying to get through that thing. And then in grad school, my teacher, Mark DiCiani, showed me this chart that he had made, which does exactly what you're saying. Take the amount of time you have, and you divide it up into these four categories. Technique, repertoire, musicality, and soloing, and then free play. So if you got an hour, you do 15 minutes of each. If you got three hours, so you just divide it up that way. Sure. Yeah, I think it's really hard to put more importance on something unless it happens to be the thing that directly relates to your drumming desires. So, you know, speed for me is much less important than improvisation and creativity because I, I'm not trying to go very fast. Um, even as a kid, even the rock that I played was more of the deftonesy, slower rock. So I was never playing metal. Where if I have a student that's really into, you know, fast up tempo metal or punk, then I, I do increase their amount of time that they work on their speed because it's directly relative to their dreams. So yeah. it's like, okay, well, you do need to do this a lot. Um, and so I think, you know, that's another thing that's hard when you to practice properly. I feel like you need to decide on that the day before. Like when I sit down at the drum set, it's like walking into a grocery store with no list and no budget. It's too many options and I'm paralyzed by it. Right. But if I kind of make my list the night before, I'm clear headed and I can think, okay, honestly, what is important to me right now? And then I'll think like, man, I don't, I don't know why my chops don't have any groove to them. So then I'll, I can write down on a piece of paper, work on improvisation while keeping two and four backbeat. You right. know, um, things like that. So I think that's one thing that a lot of people need to start doing is start creating your practice routine the night before you practice or, you know, hours before you practice rather than just sitting down in the kit. Cause like I said, that many options, it's just, it's just paralyzing and you end up just jamming and, and doing self-medicated fills that make you feel good about being alive. And, uh, you play the licks you can already play. You got to factor that in too, but the chart that I, that, uh, my teacher gave me, we would write out the entire month. So it would be like a whole week's worth of material. We would do it. We would do it all. You'd be like, by the end of the month, what do you want to be able to do? 
okay, well, let's break it down. Oh man, that's so cool. What a, what a great way to go about it. Yeah, it was, it was restricting, but it was also, I mean, I never thought that way. So I never thought, okay, I want to be able to play 350 beats per minute swing by the end of the month. So right. I'm going to break it down. I'm going to play and work my way up. I'm going to play along to some Blakey tracks and some Philly Joe Jones tracks. And I think practicing comes down to things like that, like deciding I'm going to do this. I'm going to be able to do this. It's, it's what I call the desired result technique, which is figure out your desired result and then create exercises to achieve that result. So if your desired result is to play, you know, double bass at 200 BPM, 16th notes at two, 200 BPM, then at least you know what you're trying to do, and then you can actually check it off your list when you achieve that. A lot of times people don't know what the desired result is, um, and they get so hung up on technique that they never, ever start to practice. Because, I mean, I'll just receive question after question, like, hey, I'm really trying to get my bass from technique faster or my speed faster. Should I buy JoJo Mayer's new DVD? Should I do heel up? Should I do heel down? And I'm like, you should hit the bass drum and just go. And you eventually... Dude, you're 6'11". Like, I can't tell you what to do. Like, your feet are size 15. So my technique won't work for you. And JoJo's might not either. But, I mean, I want my students to be aware of techniques. But I don't want them to be obsessed thinking if I... That's the magic pill. It's like the magic pill is practicing every time. Yeah, that was my my teacher in high school. I would go in and be like, I don't know what to practice. He was like, just practice, man. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Just practice. (laughs) Practice anything. Just sit down. Because usually the ADD kicks in and and boredom will take you somewhere fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the other thing, you know, a lot of times in clinics, uh, if I really want to shut down the Q&A section really fast, I'll just say, okay, I'll take any questions that can't be answered with the word practice. And then all the hands go down. Because it's like, no matter what you're going to say, I'll just say practice. You know, like, how do I get faster? Practice. How do I have more groove? Practice. Whatever it is, practice. So, so before we move on, do you have any other kind of practice tidbits that might help people out there? Well, I think we've kind of covered it. I mean, it's really just having a structure, have a plan, have a goal, figure out what kind of learner you are. I know for me, I'm, I'm an analytical, you know, I can, I can do the book thing. I can read really well. So the challenge for me was get the vocabulary orally transcribing by ear and not having to write it down that was what i needed to work on Um, so just find out what kind of learner you are i think is the best thing and and go to your weaknesses nice yeah i for me i'm kind of in the same boat i i can't watch somebody do something and then do it so for me watching the youtube world that's just pure inspiration usually it'll inspire me and then, like I said, I'll take that category that ex- inspired me um, over, you know, halftime shuffle thing that I saw Stan Moore do, and I'll go to the kit. And I'm not trying to copy Stan. I'm just inspired by what he was doing. And then I kind of come up with my own thing from there. Um, and I think the other thing that a lot of people don't do, and right now with technology, there's no reason not to do it, which is, you know, at some point in the practice, record yourself. Um, depending on, you know, what you want to get better at. For me, I'm working hard on improvising and soloing. So usually the last 10 minutes of every practice, I just play an improvised drum solo and record it. And then I listen to it on the way home and I get a whole different perspective from listening to me play drums than I do from playing them. Yeah, that's true. I've, I've improved so much just by having a studio in my house because I record everything and it's, Oh really? Yeah. And I used to blame it on the latency. I would blame it on this. I'd blame it on that, (laughs) but it was really just, I sucked. Yeah. (laughs) That's the hardest one to just kind of swallow that you suck, but you still can't give up. It's like, right. all right, you suck because you're new at this or you haven't put the amount of effort into it. I think that's the correlation for practicing that people have to realize, too. When 
when they think like, ah, oh, man, my fills suck. And I always ask them like, well, how much time have you put into really making playing fills a craft the way you did your first couple basic rock beats or the songs you play with your band? And it's like, oh, well, I don't ever practice it. And it's like, well, then there's a correlation there between what you perceive to be sucking at and how much you put real, real dedicated time into it, you know? Yeah, I've got a, a good example. I, I play rudimental solos as a warm-up every day. And they're all double-stroke rolls. And like two weeks ago, I'm like, you know, my single-stroke rolls really stink. Like, oh, maybe it's because I've been playing nothing but double-stroke rolls for like 10 years. <laughs> right. It could be that, yeah. It's not the fact that your singles stink. They're just, they're fatigued compared to the rest of everything else that's gotten so much more time. I mean, I, I think that too when people talk about their left hand being weak and I think like, well, what kind of music do you play? I play pop or rock or funk. And it's like, okay, so in every bar of groove, you have eight hits with your right hand and two with your left hand. So that's a four-to-one ratio that your, your, your dominant hand that doesn't even need the work is getting all the work, and then your hand that needs the work is just sitting there resting on your lap unless you hit two or four. Right. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, when we, going back to the speed thing, like I always would play a Running Down a Dream by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, left-hand lead. Nice. And I would just, you know, try to make it to the end of the song playing left-hand lead. Uh, basic rock beat, no fills, no nothing, but it, just trying to build that left hand up so it wasn't so kind of... So I didn't feel so right-hand dominant. I, I knew that my drum set had two sides to it, so I wanted to just be handed, not right-handed or left-handed. Yeah. Let's get into our first topic, our main topic today, which is independence. And I think every drummer on earth knows about independence and knows the struggles with independence and has had to tackle that at some point. At some point, there's you know a moment where you realize you physically cannot pull off the things that are happening inside your head. The drummer in your head can play things that your drummer body cannot pull off and independence comes into that, you know? So, you know, with independence, I mean, when did it creep up on you? When did you start to realize that it was a subject that needed kind of specific work? Man, it was day one. My, I got a drum really? set. Yeah. I got a drum set the Christmas. I was, I guess I was nine years old and my brother got a guitar the same Christmas. He'd already been playing a little bit so he could play like some Ramon songs and stuff. So the first day I got my drum set out of the box, set it up. He's like, all right, we're going to learn something to do by the Ramones off of Road to Ruin. He put the record on. We listened to it. He's like, you got to play that. And I was like, cool, I can do that. I can keep time with that. And we played through it a couple of times. He goes, okay, that's cool, but you're not using the bass drum. So as soon as oh. I he's like, oh, I got I to gotta hit the bass drum at a different time as the <laughs> snare drum? Day one. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's let's start out. No, no. I, I choose bass guitar. I'm done with this. I'm done with this. Day one. Yeah, so that was like, yeah. oh, I can't do that right away. Hmm. Now I got to practice something. Oh. So that was it. Day one. It was like, and I would say the majority of my practice from age nine until college was on independence to get really? better at that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think independence can come kind of naturally to some people or more natural to some people. Seems like, I mean, just as a teacher, I've been teaching since I was 17. I'm 38 now. And a lot of my female students grasp the independence thing much quicker than my male students, especially if they're younger. It just seems like they're naturally geared to multitask. Uh, for me, so not the case. It mm -hmm. drove me nuts. First song I had to learn in school band on the drum set I think was either Louie Louie or Barbaran or one of those. And same type of thing where it was like, you know, playing a basic rock beat with bass drum on one and three was so easy. And then just adding one extra bass drum threw everything off. And I didn't understand like, 
wait a minute, my hands aren't doing anything new. I'm just adding one bass drum, you know, on the end of two, and the whole thing falls apart. Yeah. And yeah. you know, but I for me it was it was something that I knew, but I didn't know it was called independence because I was so young, and and my teachers didn't bring that word up. I probably didn't r- realize what independence was until my teens. And, and start to realize there were people that were great at it and start to realize there were exercises specifically for independence. I mean, I think mm-hmm. independence is involved in everything you play as a drummer because you have four limbs that are all trying to do different things. But I didn't know there were exercises geared towards building your independence until I was in my teens. Hmm. That's cool. I mean, probably for me, it was like middle school when I really said, okay, I got to figure out how to do this for real. And that's right. when I bought a copy of New Breed by Gary Chester. And there were many, many hours. I mean, it's definitely throwing six against the wall frustration levels of <laughs> trying to play those three limb ostinatos and then reading with the bass drum over top of it. But that book right there has kind of set the whole tone. And then it was also uh, Peter Erskine's first video, Everything is Timekeeping. Yeah. He does a, a really kind of basic, essential jazz coordination chapter in there. And that I practiced that every day for, for probably a couple of years. Well, yeah, I don't know why. For some reason, it was just I knew that independence was what I, for me, that was what made a good drummer was, can I do whatever I want with any limb at any time? Right. That kind of defined everything. Yeah. So so New Breed was kind of your first experience with actually sitting down with exercises and practicing this topic, independence. Yeah, deliberately. I mean, I was learning yeah. songs, I was learning parts, but... To sit down and just practice it, it was new breed for sure. I think anytime you're on a drum set, you're working on your independence, but it's not at the forefront of your mind that that's what you're working on. You might be trying to figure out a groove, or you might be trying to nail a fill. So in your head, that's the main topic. But you know, there's an undercurrent of independence. I know for me, I think it was uh, probably um, Chapin's book was the first time that I realized, wait, jazz, the jazz ride pattern is an ostinato. Um, and it's a two-voice ostinato if I bring in my left foot on two and four, and it's a three-voice ostinato if my bass drum is feathering quarter notes, and now I have to have the independence with my left hand to play all these different syncopated rhythms, and that was that was the first time that I started hearing, like, you know, I was reading Modern Drummer as a kid, and all of a sudden that word independence started creeping up, I was like, this is what they're talking about, you know? Um, and like I said, I was a teenager, so drums weren't that... I wasn't that serious about drums until I was a late teenager. You know, when I was 11, it was just one of the things I did along with skateboarding and racing BMX bikes and stuff. So it wasn't like at 11 I was obsessing over drums. And then all of a sudden when I got into Chapin's book and then eventually uh, when uh, – uh, the uh, what is it? Uh, not Beyond Bop. What's, what's uh, John Riley's first one? The Art of Bop Drumming? Yeah, Art of Bop Drumming. Or not his first one, but The Art of Bop Drumming. Yeah. That was the the one where I was like, okay, I'm in trouble. We have some problems here. <laughs> right. Uh, so. Yeah, well, you know, thinking about it, I got into independent study when I really got into jazz music. It was probably hand in hand. Because right. jazz required yeah. so much independence, I was naturally drawn to it. And I'll probably drawn to independence because I was into sports and I was also into math. So it was like a a way to combine the two things. It was a physical, can I get my body to do this weird thing? And then can I count four over three at the same time? Yeah. And I think, you know, independence also gives you that sense of accomplishment because you sit out on the drum set and you can't do something. And if you stay there long enough, eventually there, unlike feel, there is the sense of accomplishment. Like, no, I'm doing this. This is actually happening right now. 
I win. You know, I get to yeah. go on to the next exercise. And I, so I think working on your independence gives you that immediate gratification and that sense of accomplishment that not a lot of things in art can give you. Yeah, and it's one of those rare things where once you learn it, you kind of can't unlearn it. Totally you- true. There's so few things that I can go back to that I was doing, you know, when I was really independent or into independence that I can't do now. I, yeah. I you know, it may take me a couple measures to work it back up, but it's there, you know, yeah. and it leads to so much other things. I mean, that's why when I teach students, if we're working on jazz and I can tell they're just not into jazz, I can just tell them, stop thinking of this as jazz. It's just hard to do. It's just independence. You know, it's mm-hmm. a triplet based independence exercise. If you want to call it that instead of, you know, the art of bop drumming or whatever. So, right. Now, do you have people that like you look up to or you get inspiration from when it comes to independence? Yeah, it's kind of the same thing. It was for me, it was all about being more musical. Independence meant musical freedom. So I was rather than being drawn to the super drummers who had huge kits and pedals everywhere. I love to hear Bill Stewart play a four piece kit and be completely free with his left foot or Antonio Sanchez and have, you know, jam blocks and cowbells with his feet, but he's using them in a melodic way. It's not a rhythmic way. It's, it's a melodic way. So those guys and, and Gavin Harrison might be the, the most musical kind of prog drummer to to me and his independence is is all about music it's not it's not a physical act he's expressing some kind of an idea so those three guys probably really Antonio and Bill Stewart are like the two guys like I want to be that I want to be able to do that I want to be able to play melodies with my hands and feet freely yeah I think you know that that one do you know what year it was what modern drummer festival was it where Bill Stewart it was Bill Stewart Horacio Hernandez Tony Royster uh, yeah, I bought that. Uh, I don't. I want to say ninety eight, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I, but that that really brought a lot of people, you know, into the public spotlight. As far as when I saw Bill Stewart play, I was like, okay, I may not be the biggest jazz fan in the world, but I could listen to that cat play drums all day long. Um, and then you know the independence of Horacio Hernandez. I mean, he kind of in the modern drummer festival brought us the whole left foot clave thing and that right. you know and virgil donati was on that festival too so there's another independence wizard but uh, for me i think my favorite person when i'm looking at independence is still will kennedy and mainly it's his independence of the pulse you know the pulse is what that's almost like his ostinato keeping a pulse that you can always feel a pulse in whatever he's playing, and no matter what he adds to it, that pulse never goes away. And that's a, a slightly different type of independence, but it, it really it always spoke to me, you know. Yeah, you know, I don't really know. I mean, I listen to a lot of his stuff, but I can't say that I'm completely hip to him. So I got to check him out a little bit more. Yeah, he's a he's an interesting dude because I mean, like you know, I really fell in love with him more from what he did with Bobby McFerrin on the Bang Zoom record. Then I did the Yellow Jackets. My teacher at the time, Matt McLean, was trying to hit me to Will uh, and Terry Lynn Carrington and other cats that he was into. And I listened to the Yellow Jackets and I was like, eh, I skateboard. You know, I'm into like rock and I'm like, eh, this isn't my jam. I don't know what that like kind of fake, you know, clarinet thing is. Like, I, right. it, this isn't for me. And then, uh, you know, which I did, I, I mean, I totally fell in love with the Yellow Jackets music later. But at the time, I was like, eh. But I was a huge Bobby McFerrin fan, and he played on the Bang Zoom album, and I think uh, so did the bass player from the Yellow Jackets. And it was just, you know, 
the, the musicality was unreal, but it was all based around a pulse. So I, I learned right away when I was trying to play along to that Bobby McFerrin album that I didn't have the independence it took to be that musical. And, uh, I think sometimes when people hear the word independence, they're immediately thinking Thomas Lang, Virgil Donati, Marco Miniman, and they're not realizing that independence is what's giving you the freedom to be as musical and tasteful and soulful as you want. Right. Yeah, that's the so. key. Do you have any favorite independence exercises that you work on or you did work on? You know, I had one that I worked on a ton when I was younger. I don't know if I could do it anymore. It would it would be taking eighth note triplet in one limb, eighth notes in the, in the other limb. So the right hand okay. eighth note triplets, the left hand eighth notes. So yeah. so two over three polyrhythm. And then playing the halftime version of that in the feet. So quarter note triplets with the right foot, quarter oh. notes with the left foot. So you do that, and then you, like a clock, you just you just rotate everything to the right. So the, so the right hand part moves down to the right foot. The right foot part moves to the left foot. You just keep rotating until you get back full circle. This break is brought to you by Aquarian <laughs> Drumheads. While I go to my drum set and try to practice that, we'll be back in five minutes. That is awesome. We'll talk when this podcast is over, and uh, we'll uh, and you can send me the PDF in the show notes. Yeah, I don't know who who taught me that, but it was that was my my challenge probably from age thirteen to sixteen to be able to do that, just a switch nice. on a, on a, on a dime. I've been having my students go through. Uh, they're playing sixteenth notes um, between the floor tom and the kick drum. So the floor tom is playing eighth notes, kick drum is playing the e's and the uz. Left foot could play anything as long as it's consistent and not syncopated. It could be quarter notes it could be upbeats could be eighth notes as splash close or as close splash so those that's the three-way ostinato and then the left hand cycles through groupings of two three four five six seven and eight and then back down so you're playing you know every two sixteenth notes so you're playing your left hand's playing eighth notes and then it starts playing every third sixteenth note one mm. e and a two e and a three e and a then the four then the five one e and a two e and a three and a four e and a one e and a two and you go through that up and down, and then you just keep trying to make the left foot part harder. So eventually, you start bringing in, you know, maybe a three-eight part with the left foot. So it's like splash, close, close, splash, close, close, splash, close, close, while still doing that same cycle. Cool. Where does that go? What is the end result? I think the end result is being able to actually kind of improvise with the left hand while playing digga 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 between your floor tom and your kick. So you can have this kind of almost fake or pseudo double bass thing happening between floor and kick, and the left hand's going get to get get to get 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 to get get to get get to get to get to get. So, you know, and it just can introduce people to like what it's like to have all four limbs going at the same time, but trying to get three of them on autopilot. So it's like, okay, you three are set. I'm not talking to you anymore, and now I'm just going to focus on this left hand, you know, playing through this cycle. is creativity and you and I are you know we've known each other for quite a while and I've always looked at you as somebody that is very creative on the instrument and even some of the drummers you follow I know some of your influences and I know that you know when I think of them I'm immediately thinking of creativity practicing creativity can be tough guys so if you're thinking about sitting down on the drum set and and thinking okay I'm going to be creative right now I mean, what do you do? Like, how do you even start that? And I think there's 
ways, if you're a creative person, you don't even have to ask yourself this question maybe because you just sit down and you are creative. But some people like myself are not creative whatsoever. Uh, when you see a website that I've done or if you see a picture that I put up on you know, social media or if you see a drum solo, there's so much thought that went behind it. It's not in- instantaneous creativity at all or spontaneous creativity by any means. And one of the things that I do to start the creative juices flowing is I'll, I'll try to find influence in other drummers in a video and I'm, I'm looking for a spark. I'm looking for a key rhythm. I'm looking for a melodic phrase or just something to start me on the drum set to see if I can begin a journey or maybe even a category. So I'll say, okay, I'm going to try to be creative in nonlinear triplets or I'm going to be try to be as creative as I can transitioning between uh, 16th notes and 8th note triplets and stuff like that. So Mike, do you have anything specifically for yourself that gets you kind of in the flow of practicing creativity? Yeah, I had a, you know, I, I came up doing a lot of method books and stuff, so I kind of had a, a little bit of a roadblock early on with this as well. But then in college, I was doing a lot of improvised music, and there were a couple of things in that. One was one of the ensembles was I wasn't allowed to play drum set. I had to just pick instruments and play them. And it was all improvised, and I, so I'd, my ride cymbal would be a gong, <laughs> my bass drum would be like a like a hand drum on its side. So I was playing more like like classical percussion instruments, and it was all just free improvisation. There was no no written music whatsoever, and I had to be convincing. So I let, and I did that every semester for three years, and it was a core. It was a quartet. It was a Trombone, cello, bass, and drums. <laughs> Upright bass and oh, drums. Man. So that that just being in that situation was like, all right, I can't I can't play any licks. I can't play grooves per se. I have to just play textures. So that learned I learned kind of dynamic and textures kind of creates the story in that situation. So whatever I'm feeling not creative, I'll just explore like sounds. That's a really good point. Like, I mean, the, when you change anything on your drum set, I can remember being a kid and, and just getting a splash cymbal and then a million new ideas were coming to me because of this new sound that was on my drum set. Getting my first cowbell, all of a sudden it was a brand new drum set. Kick, snare, hats, ride, everything was the same, but I added a cowbell and that was a new instrument and the creativity was really flowing. And right now, I mean, you and I were talking about it a little bit ago, but I just got... Uh, a new kit from Gretsch. I got the Broadcaster, and it's such a different animal than any of my other Gretsch kits, and it's in different sizes that aren't my normal sizes. I got uh, 20 by 14 kick, 12 by 8 rack tom, 14 by 14 floor tom, and 14 by 5 snare, and I'm playing so different right now because the drum set won't play the way that I normally play, and so I have to slow the tempos down, play with more space, give every note its its own thing. And and to me, creativity is not about playing as many notes as you can. It's it's being creative and getting outside of your comfort zone. And yeah, a new instrument or something like the extreme, what you did will really help. But I think one thing that our, our kind of listeners should try is arranging your drum set in a different way. Get rid of your rack toms for a day and, and have your ride cymbal right in the middle of the bass drum and just see what that does. Uh, Pete Magadini actually on my very first tour in my um, signed rock band in Simon Says uh, I had just started private lessons with Pete Magadini 
And he said, okay, uh, I told him, I said, okay, I'm going out for six months and then I'll be back to resume lessons. And he said, okay, you can only take kick, snare, crash and ride. And I was like, excuse me? Like, no, 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 no. Like we just recorded an album that has like, like bridges that are all tribal Tom, you know, rage against the corn tones, Tom grooves. And he said, well, you can't, you can barely, you know, you're not great at kick, snare, and hi-hats. Why would you think that adding all these drums is going to make you any better? So Pete had me take out just kick, snare, hats, crash, and ride. The band got used to it. Everything was fine. And then when I came home and I played for him a little bit, then he said, okay, now you can take out a floor tom. And that floor tom was just, it was heaven. And I, I used it, you know, in a very creative way. So I think changing your setup can really help your creativity um, and you know, when you said, when you talked about what you went through, Mike, it immediately made me think, yeah, every time I change my setup, my playing changes a little bit. So it's something that's really good to do. Yeah. I mean, sound for me is everything. So whatever I hear makes me play completely differently. Like I, I went through a phase when I couldn't play, uh, a, a normal sounding drum set. It had to be completely open, high tuned. So when I'd be in, in college and I'd go to the practice room and the kit would be like, like an R and B sounding kit. It's like I can't, I can't play this because I'm not getting enough sustain. I'm not getting enough tone to work with. It's just all attack. Right. And and at that moment, I wasn't really into that type of playing. I was into bebop and things like that. So for me, sound is is if I want to be creative, I have to have good sounds. Gotcha. That's really important. Inspiring sounds. Speaking of inspiring sounds, where do you get your inspiration from? Like. If you felt like you weren't being very creative, where would you go to kind of inspire yourself to work on your creativity? It depends. I mean, musically, I'd probably go back to some of my, just the, the guys that I love the way they play, Elvin Jones, Tony Williams, Philly Joe Jones, and I just play along to their records until, until I find something in their vocabulary that, I, that makes me want to practice it. And then that just sparks a whole session of, all right, here's that, here's the way Philly Joe Jones plays the the four stroke rough now let me just mess with that in different tempos different styles different orchestrations and eventually i kind of caught with something i'm like oh that's that's kind of mine i can take that elven lick and it, and turn it into sixteenth notes and it kind of becomes mine and, and then i used to have this three-part process i would ex- I'll call it ex- exploration and then i would create a practice session out of that so the exploration was just playing along the records and just having fun and then wait until i find that spark you know, so then, then when I hit that, I'm like, I need to figure out a way to practice that. And then once I practice it, I would go into a composition mode. So I would always like to end my session with, let me compose at least a, a 16 bar piece using this concept. That's really cool, man. That's, that's, I think every time we talk and I hear more about your history as a drummer, I learn a new way that I could either myself approach something or I could pass on to my students, you know, because sometimes when you're teaching, you're teaching something and, and, and you're thinking, okay, well, I'm teaching you the way that I was taught or the way that I learned and I'm hoping it works for you. And sometimes for the students, it just doesn't work and it's not clicking. And you have to have the ability as an instructor to say, okay, think of it like this. And then when that doesn't work, you say, you know what, let's try something different. And so I think that that's something I've never thought of, you know, putting on an album of their favorite drummer and say, all right, close your eyes, man. You know, we're going to listen to your favorite band until you find something that you just go like that right there. I wish I could do that. What is that? 
And it's like, all right, let's make a plan out of that. Let's explore that. And then instead of just learning that lick or that chop, let's make an entire, you know, subject matter out of what made that chop possible and try to be as creative as we can so that you have your own vocabulary out of what, you know, inspired you in the first place. Yeah, that's the goal. And then be outside of music. I would, I always look to art because I, I don't feel like I'm very visually artistic. So I try to, I'm trying to learn it. So I'm always looking at, at you know, modern art books. I'm reading the Salvador Dali bio right now because surrealism just fascinates me. So I'm kind of stuck in this idea of how can I make the drum set surreal? What what can I do to be a surrealist drummer? Because the, what's a surrealist? Well, they're hyper-detailed and very realistic, but there's something about it that is completely unrealistic. So how do you do that on the drum set? Maybe I try to get the most pristine, steely Dan sounding drum sound, but I use a, a eight inch snare drum or I use a huge snare drum and like detune it and put tons of weird effects on it or something, something that would make it surreal. I'm not sure yet. I'm still exploring that idea, but. Wow, man. So I think we just figured it. Cause I'm thinking like, okay, I did not know that about you, but now knowing something other than drums that you're really into. And then if we, you know, the things that I'm really into couldn't be more opposite. I'm, I'm into astrophysics and astronomy. And I was really bummed that when I was in Germany this last couple of weeks, I wasn't able to get to the uh, Museum of Mathematics in Gießen. And then, <laughs> it, but it's like, that's how my drumming is. It's very like, okay, let's figure out the process. Let's dissect it note for note. It's not that I don't want to be creative. I really do. It's just not there in my blood. And even now when I look at like your outside interests and my outside interests, it's kind of it's it's in tune with our drumming. So the drumming is kind of a reflection of who we are as people. Yeah, and I think if you want to do something that's not comfortable, you have to just go for it. Like I I can't say that I really like modern art, like abstract art, but I'm I'm fascinated by that, by the fact that I don't get it. And with like songwriting lyrics, I'm fascinated with the fact that I cannot write lyrics. <laughs> so, I, so when I hear like a, a modern country song where the story is so straightforward and, and so awesome at the same time, I'm like, I need to figure out how to do that. Absolutely, yeah. I used to, I used to just pour over Mike Patton's lyrics uh, from Faith No More. I was like, God, I just want to know this man. And then I got to spend time. Uh, I was out in uh in europe doing festivals in my 20s and mr bungle was on like probably six of our shows in a row and just getting to talk to that guy was i was like man your lyrics make a lot of sense now (laughs) now i know from you know talks that we've had in the past that you're really really a huge fan of is it glenn from wilco oh yeah glenn kochi would probably be when you're talking creativity he's my number one absolutely I mean, I saw him at, at PASIC, his first PASIC, I don't know, it was probably six years ago at this point. He played, he debuted his Monkey Chant, which is his, his solo drum set piece based on an ancient story of this battle of a king and his army and all this. So he he assigned all the characters in this, this I think it's an opera, actually, this, this opera, and he assigned all the characters with different sounds on his kit, and he had springs on his snare drum, and he had a lion's roar attached to his snare drum, and... All, he had a, a thumb piano with grip tape on it so he could scratch it. And that's is that the same thing he did at the Modern Drummer Festival, right? It is. It is. So he did that the year before, I think, at PASIC. And that was one of those moments where like, I couldn't help but jump out of my seat at the end of it. 
It's like, holy cow, that's the most creative, most amazing drum solo I've ever heard. I don't ever want to hear a six-stroke roll again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's so awesome. And it transfers into what he does with Wilco. Yeah, man, like, you know, I think for me the first time that I really, I don't know, was kind of amazed by creativity was uh, the stuff that Matt Chamberlain was doing. Uh, you know, I'm a huge Matt Chamberlain fan, but I remember the Critters Bug and stuff and definitely some early Fiona Apple, early Tori Amos. Um, I couldn't figure out what was percussion and what was drum set. They were blending so well together. And since I didn't have an extensive percussion background at the time, I really had to be creative to get my snare to sound like, you know, a snare with a hand clap with some shakers on it. You know, I mean, there's so much. So I think other drummers, especially, I think creativity really, I think would be better helped by listening rather than seeing. If you could see what Glenn is doing or you could see what Matt Chamberlain is doing, you just copy it. But if you just listen to the albums and just close your eyes, you have to be creative and think, how the heck am I going to get my drums to sound like that? Yeah, Matt is also way up on there. Joey Wonker is another one for me, where he his stuff he does with Beck and, and his own projects, uh, it's seamless, and it's the same thing. Like he, it sounds like there's a shaker and a drum set, but he's actually playing the shaker and the drum set at the same time. Or it doesn't sound like there's you don't even notice that there's drums at all on the track. But when you really start listening, you're like, oh my gosh, that's some of the most amazing musical drumming I've ever heard. But he does nothing to call attention to himself. And the industry has totally supported that now. I mean, we have so many things, little jingle rings to put on your snare. I mean, Sabian has that thing for JoJo, and Mark Giuliani uses that. Um, Minel has like a jingle ring that goes on top of your existing symbol or on your hi-hat. Um, I know that different companies have come out with like shakers that attach to your drumstick, you know. Um, I remember seeing, uh, do you know uh, Zach Hill from Hella? Yeah, he was on my list of, of creative people. So Zach's here in SAC and, and we did lessons. I taught his little brother for a long time. Then we did a lesson together and I told him, dude, please don't ever sign up for a lesson with anyone ever again because I don't want anyone to straighten you out. Uh, this is when he was a kid. And um, and so, you know, but Zach was like one of those first people that I saw just playing, like bashing his ride cymbal with maracas. And I was like, wow, I never thought to use maracas as my sticks. He had those kind of LP plastic maracas and he was bashing his ride with it and it was awesome, you know? And he kind of defined the, the stack trash sound for me. Before him, I never heard really heard anybody do it. I mean, Weckl kind of did a couple stacks, but but Zach was like, "I'm going to put all the junk I've got in one pile and then hit it really hard." <laughs> and Zach, I mean, you know, like I said, we've been, you know, I haven't seen him in years, but we kind of grew up together. Uh, his band was called Legs on Earth, and they were very primacy in the early '90s. Then uh, my band was kind of just a, a little more heavy, but we grew up playing together all the time with Abe from the Deftones and Chris Robine from Far and Dave Buckner from Papa Roach were all in the same town. And, you know, Zach was that one that I I just, no matter when he was playing, I wanted to watch him play. But he really, he's not, he's, he's not trying to be creative. He can't help it. That's just who he is as a human, you know. And it's awesome to sit back and just really experience the difference between normal human, you know, some business savvy, some kind of social skills, and then, the complete switch into artist and you get that word that word artist and you're like okay this is an artist and it's in every fiber of their being so zach hill definitely 
Um, you know, and just listen to what he did with Team Sleep. If you guys haven't heard Team Sleep, that's Chino Moreno from Deftones. That's his side project or one of them besides Crosses and some other things. But check out Team Sleep's first album and listen to Zach Hill. Um, and then if you really want to go bananas with the creativity, if you want to hear kind of the pre-Animals as Leaders, the pre-periphery, listen to Hella. It's a duo, uh, duo, just guitars and drums. And Zach is a monster in that band. Yeah, and they put out a, a really nice tour DVD that kind of shows all the, the craziness and ama- amazing life that they lived on the road. And just to see Zach, I mean, he, he, he's like a monk. He, he, he's devoted his entire soul to playing the drums the most honest way that he can. Yep. So he's, he's broken his foot from playing, trying to play the bass drum too, too fast and too hard. Yep. He's busted knuckles. I mean, it's unreal. And could, like, you have to keep in mind, once you guys hear Hella, this will make more sense to you. But Sacramento is not San Francisco. Sacramento is not Manhattan. So um, once you hear this music, then imagine that happening in the coffee shops around here in Sacramento in a small town. And it was, <laughs> dude, it was not accepted well. And they couldn't care less, man. You tell them to turn down, they just turn up louder. It was just incredible. It was a, it was a good time here. Our main topic is drum shell properties. And when you and I spoke on the phone about this, I was telling you kind of my predetermined ideas of what I think about drum shells. And you kind of said, well, I just did some testing of my own and you might be surprised. So before we talk about wood type or plies or depths or bearing edge, what was what what experiments did you do? Yeah, I I decided to do some inventory with my own collection. Okay. Really just for my own research to see what my drums could and couldn't do and so I would know better what gear to use per for a project. So I just happen to have thirteen inch toms that are birch, maple, mahogany poplar three ply, and an acrylic. So I I got them all, you know, out on, on the floor. Originally I was gonna put like the matching heads on everything, but I decided, you know what, this is my collection, this is the way they are. I wanna just see how they sound with the heads they have on them and, and go with that. So it wasn't completely controlled, but regardless, what I did was I took the TuneBot uh, recommended settings for that particular drum for maximum resonance, and then tuned up the highest recommended pitch. For so that I think it ended up being like the note C. So I tuned each drum to the note C, played it in the room, made mental notes, put a microphone on it, which was a closed mic and a pair of overheads, and then recorded each one. And then tuned it down to the middle pitch that TuneBot recommends. Did the exact same thing. And then pitched it down as low as, as they recommend. And did the exact same thing. You're so thorough. And then I did the, exact, the whole process again with the whole kit, with the 13 and a 16. And played, wow. played both toms and then played like a groove. Okay, so let me give you my predetermined, this has been stuck in Mike's head for his whole life thing, okay. and then you tell me your results. Okay. Okay, so when I think of maple, I think of warmth, full body, and decent attack. When I think of birch, I think way more volume, harder wood, not as much warmth, um, and just kind of a in-your-face harsh sound. Walnut, I think of responds better to low tunings, um, stuff like that. And I really don't know much about Walnut. I've never recommended it to a student because so few drums are made out of it. I don't have a ton of experience with it. And then when I think acrylic, I think almost like negatively about the material. And I think it'll, it, you know, 
it's a kind of a very fast decaying material. It's loud because it's hard. So those are like my predetermined prejudices. Now, what did you find? Well, it wasn't walnut, although I did do a separate test with walnut and birch for Gretsch's New Renown kit. It was mahogany poplar, not walnut. Mahogany. I got it. Okay. Okay, so here's what I found. In the room, setting the drum up on a stand and just hitting it, uh, it you could really tell the difference. Like It was like night and day. I started with the birch, and it just was like, cool, this sounds like a, a nice drum. You know, it's kind of focused, it's hitting me, it's, the pitch is very clear. When I put the maple up, it was like, oh my God, this is taking up, this is putting out so much more sound. Really? Not necessarily volume, but just okay. sound. It's just filling out the room in a much broader way. So it's got more frequencies going on, a wider range. I'm not a scientist. I have no idea what happened. <laughs> All I can tell you is it was it was vibrating the molecules in my, my studio at a much more okay. noticeable rate. We will send Professor Brian Cox over to your house, uh, and he can do his own experiment. So that said, when I went back to the birch, it was clear that it was a bit, it was just a more contained, direct sound. Okay. Uh, the maple was just very broad, almost like, like, bombastically broad. Wow. Just took so much, so much space. And then the mahogany poplar, even though I had, I had to, I had to double check, even though I had each tuning rod tuned identical to the other drums, the pitch was lower. It just, okay. it just, it emphasized lower frequencies and it, and it felt softer physically, like it, it just was a softer, cushier sound. Got it. And then the acrylic. I expect it to be kind of harsh and bright. It was right. actually one of the, it was the dullest, shortest sound. It was the punchy, okay. the punchiest of the four. And that was at the high tuning. And then just going down, it was, it was pretty consistent. It was most noticeable for me at the high tuning, the difference. When you got to mid and low, it just kind of became, these are starting to sound like drums. Drums, got it. Uh, with the exception of the mahogany, that always sounded darker fatter, more like just softer. And do you know what the ply makeup was? Was it one of mahogany then four poplar then one mahogany or was no, it two two and two? It's one it's inner outer mahogany and a uh-huh. center ply of poplar. Three ply. Oh it's a three ply shell. Yep. Okay. So that's like your vintage style shell. Yep. Um so that was just acoustically in the room. Very noticeable. When I put the microphones on them, they almost sounded identical. All of them. Really? Yeah. Again, with the exception wow. of the three-ply poplar, that one just sounded like a minor key for some reason. It just had a moodier sound. That also could, I mean, there could be a little bit to do with just the shell makeup itself being a three-ply shell. You've got two layers of glue holding that together rather than five layers of glue holding a six-ply shell. Um, I don't know that that would affect it at all. I'm sure the wood type has more to do with it than that, but yeah, um, three ply shells do have a spe- specific sound. The acrylic was is a an old Ludwig Bistolite that has a segmented shell. It's like a red, an orange, yep. and a, so that the way that shell is made, it's not. I mean, it's got some some gaps in the seams right. and stuff, which was so it's not a, not a controlled experiment by any stretch of imagination. But well, no, and like you said, I mean, I think more than anything, the lesson here is that people should know their own gear. And it sounds like you weren't doing this for the podcast or for the magazine. You were doing this because you wanted to know your own gear so you could take it 
take the proper kit to the proper gig. Yeah, and it, it's it's come in handy whenever I do uh, sessions since then. If if it's a moodier or minor key tune, I'll tend to go to the poplar maple, uh, mahogany. If it's more of something where I just need a big kind of classic sound, it's the maple. And if I need something that just fits in a tight frequency spectrum, it's the birch. Got it. And the poor acrylic just doesn't make it to sessions. <laughs> There's no room <laughs> for it. But you know what? I think I think maybe, you know, not in your playing, but I think cuz I think obviously the acrylic stuff was kind of brought to the forefront for to be on stage, to be seen as a clear drum set. I mean, it was a cool thing to look at, but then eventually it did have its own sound. But I think right off the bat just from your explanation, my experiences in the past, if I have a student, you know, or even myself that's playing a very note-dense type of music, a lot of chops, um, then, I mean, birch and acrylic are going to be perfect for that because they decay so fast, and you're going to hear the separation of every note, where if I want to play more of a Matt Chamberlain style and really let each note have a ton of value to it, it sounds like the maple um, and the mahogany are going to work better for that, too. Yeah, the acrylic, and I have another acrylic kit that's seamless that I've used on gigs, and to define acrylic for me it's like you're hearing the drum heads like right. the, the shell itself has like almost zero character right so whatever you put on it if you want to if you put a double ply head it's going to have a lot of attack if you put a single ply head it's going to have a longer sustain and, and kind of a brighter tone so it's good for that it doesn't work it's not good for for me when I play in a bunch of different rooms I don't know what they're going to sound like because that that kit sounds so different in any you know, different types of rooms Sometimes it just has like nothing. Sometimes it's really too loud or too bright. So acrylic is, is kind of a testy, for my experience, kind of a testy shell type. Got it. Got it. And yeah, and I think it's I think it's a it needs to be a double a double thing where you want to have the acrylic because it looks good and because it has a very specific look on stage. Um, and I think it's. I think you're almost buying it more for the look than than people obsessing over acrylic sounds, you know. Um, and I think, especially too, unless your ear is tuned well enough to hear this stuff, I think that's why maple is so popular—not popular, but popular—because it just sounds like a drum. It sounds great. It's got a wide frequency. You can do a lot with it. Um, I've had drums that had very narrow tuning ranges where they only sounded good tuned a certain way. And generally, a standard maple drum set is going to have a pretty wide range of tuning. You can tune it up, get some jazz tones out of it. You can tune it down, put some gaff tape on it, and be playing in a Steely Dan cover band. So it gives you a lot of flexibility. And sometimes people get too exotic too early on in their drumming timeline. They've only played for two years, and they're like, yeah, I got a babinga, you know, 14 by 9 snare drum. I'm like, What? How? Yep. What are you talking about? Like, you start with the standards, you know. I, it was funny. I just recommended somebody uh, today during the online lessons was asking about symbols and if they should get my signature sim- ride symbol. And I said, "Well, how long have you played for?" And they've been playing for about a year. And I said, "No, you should have like a Sabian B8. Yeah. And when you feel that you finally have outgrown that, then you should get the B8 Pro, you know, <laughs> or whatever. I mean, whatever the uh, equivalent is in Zildjian, Minel, Peisty, all that stuff, and." Uh, I said, but you know, your your gear should be determined by your ear. At some point, you just hear like, ah, my cymbals sound kind of tinny. Well, then you step up and step up. Same with drums. And, you know, Maple's a great place for people to start, um, and then they'll learn more and more about what these things do. Yeah, I mean, when people often say it's either maple or birch, and in my little test, that 
that wasn't really the best comparison. It was more like you should either have a maple or a birch kit as your main kit and then go for something like a mahogany. So what you're saying is those two aren't far enough apart to really warrant the thinking of them as two different things. Got it. I mean, it was like you can get a birch kit to do pretty much what you want. You can get a maple kit to do anything you want. It just comes down to the minor difference of taste for like like focus versus breadth. But the mahogany is very different. Yeah, yeah. I have four kits set up here at the facility, and I just realized I don't have a single maple kit because my USA Custom is maple gum tree maple. My Brooklyn is maple, then poplar maple. Um, and then my Broadcaster is maple, poplar, maple, but in a three-plot configuration. So I don't have like a solid maple kit, you know. Um, yeah, I think I think it's just important too at some point to kind of do what you did. Just put all the prejudices aside and just hit the drums and notice what you notice. And that's it without any predetermined Birch is going to do this and Maple's going to do this, you know. And there's also like Birch is the, a generic term. So a, a Birch entry-level kit is not going to sound like a Birch high-end kit. Right. The wood itself is a completely different wood. So that's you have to be careful with the word birch too. And the and and the country. I mean, uh, DW's American maple is much different than an, a maple tree from Japan, you know, that's being used in somebody else's drum. So, you know. And I mean, I think that's the other thing that always gets left out is we're still talking about wood. I mean, acrylic is the only one that can be kind of replicated exactly the same every time, but even if you had the same kit as me, your tree might have been cut down on a year that had less rainfall. I mean, there's so much that goes into this stuff and making things what they are, which is cool. We don't want to have exact replicas of everybody's stuff. You know, we want to have our own thing. Yeah, exactly. Find your own. Now, what do you think about, like, the shelf thickness? When you're looking for a kit for yourself, are you looking for how many plies it is, how thick it is? Um, do you do you think that, like, the shell thickness has a lot to do with the sustain, that type of stuff? I mean, I'm sure it does, but in my experience, I, I don't even know what the plies of my kits are, except for the three-ply. I mean, I know what that is, but I don't know what my my, uh, my maple kit is, the Keller uh, Magnum series. So I know it's thicker plies, fewer number of plies than, like, a standard plywood shell, but I don't know what it is. Uh, the Birch kit, I have no idea how many plies it is. So for me, thickness. I mean, I know what it what what it does, but I don't. I don't think about. I don't. I don't consider it. So you you just hit the drum. If it sounds good, that's one for you. Exactly. I mean, I know within these species, I know because I mean, you could go crazy. You can say, well, I want a, I want a thin. You could probably get a thin birch kit to sound like a thick maple kit. You just can go crazy with that stuff. Yeah. Well, I think you've taken a lot of stress off of our listeners' uh, plates as far as they're like, okay, good, because I have no clue what my kit's made out of. Right. I don't know what wood it is. I don't even know what the name of the finish is. Is it Arctic white? Is right. it snow white? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we have to hit these things. They need to sound good. I mean, in general, guys, the thicker the shell, the higher the timbre of the wood. It's The pitch is going to go up. You can go down to Home Depot tomorrow and just go to the PVC pipe section and find a PVC pipe that is very, very thin. Hit it with your fist. It'll produce a low note. Then go find the same diameter but a thicker PVC pipe and hit that with your fist, and it'll produce a much higher note. That doesn't mean that the 
that the drum itself is better or worse. It just means that it's going to respond better to to higher tunings or to lower tunings. And so if you want to really like a drum set that's going to produce a lot of low frequencies, you're going to want a thinner shell. And if you want that kind of, I remember um, a good example would be the OCDP 50 ply snare drum. Just go listen to any Limp Biscuit record and you'll know what a 50 ply snare drum does. It goes and it's it's just a loud dead crack you know uh the resonance obviously goes down a little too things like the depth have a lot to do with your resonance and resonance for those of you that don't know it's just how long the the drum rings how long the note lasts for and so the shallower the drum eventually what happens is you hear that resonant head right away um so let's say we're talking about a square size drum a 10 by 10 rack tom well that that diameter is pretty small and the depth is pretty deep. So that that tone coming from the top head might never make it to the bottom head to resonate the head. So it might actually, even though you see this long tube, it might not have a ton of tone. And then as you start to bring that bottom head up by shallowing the drum, you start to get more and more resonance. And then eventually, it's the law of diminishing returns, you get the drum so shallow that it starts to not, it, it doesn't have the time to resonate anymore. It doesn't get to do its job. So that's why we have standard sizes like 10 by 8 or 10 by 7 because the, the drum industry has figured out a really good size. And I think the most applicable situ- situation for this would be bass drums. I think people started thinking in kind of the Travis Barker era, oh, deeper is better. I'm going to have a cannon. I remember hearing that word from all my students. Oh, man, I got to get this 22 by 22 cannon. And I was like, you will never, ever hit that thing hard enough for the sound to resonate the rezo head. If you want the biggest bass drum sound out of a 22, you should get a 22 by 16 or a 22 by 14. Um, so the, the, the depth has a lot to do with it. Uh, do you have any kind of opinions on that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think of depth as headroom for me. So okay. especially in snare drums, a shallower snare for me means I, I'm not going to be able to wail on it. It's going to bottom out. Um, so if I'm playing really hard music, I need to go six and a half or deeper. If I'm playing a more delicate music, I need to go shallower so the ghost notes are articulate. Uh, so for me, depth is like how much, how much, what's my volume? If I need to play hard, I want deeper drums, just a deeper snare. If I'm going to be playing all over the place, I'll go for a five and a half. If it's going to be mostly quiet stuff, I'll probably go like four and a half. Uh, and bass drums... I don't have as much as an opinion about the depth of a bass drum because I, I have a 14 by 22 Rogers that sounds huge. I have a 14 by 24 WFL that sounds like John Bonham. I have a 14 by 20 that sounds huge. Uh, and I also have an 18 by 22 that I can really tell the difference. It does have a little bit more power, I guess is the word. I mean, that's kind of a generic word, but no, no, no. I know what you mean. It doesn't, I mean, you're not going to get it as boomy, but it does kick you right in the chest. Yeah, it's, it puts out more, just like the the maple shell put out more sound. I feel like the 18 by 22 just put out more sound. Right. Yeah, um, it, it just took up more space. Um, toms, I really have no opinion. They, I don't like pancake toms. Right. But anything standard or, up, I mean, power toms you just don't see anymore, but they, they work too. For me, I haven't had any trouble. In a, in a square floor time, I know some people have philosophies of, of not getting 16 by 16 or 14 by 14, but they work for John Bottom, they work for Ringo, they work for Bernard Purdy. <laughs> they, I mean, they're going to work for me, you know. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> yeah, man, I think, uh, I think a lot of times, too, the tom sizes have to do with being comfortable. You know, floor toms sit on the floor 
or on a rack, but the, it's really the rack toms that, you know, if you get a, a 12 by 9 on a 22-inch kick, that thing's going to be pretty tall, you know, yeah. where when you have a 12 by 7 or 12 by 8, you get it does get to go down another inch or two inches, and it makes a big difference. So a lot of it has to do with that. That's why some of you guys that are listening may have seen some of your favorite drummers that play huge toms, their rack tom is on a snare stand. Well, it's because if they put it on top of their bass drum, they wouldn't be able to reach it. Um, the only one that can reach it is Mike Borden from Faith No More. I don't know how he does it. Um, but but still, I mean, so, you know, that stuff, there has to be a nice balance between comfort and sound. And, um, and I, I really hope that all of you guys will go out there, you know, go to your local drum shops and just start looking at different sized drums, different materials, and just hit them and, and ask the guy at the drum shop, hey, why did Tama do this? Why did Pearl do this? Why did Yamaha do this? And just learn. The more that you learn, the, the, the more that you're just going to be able to make great decisions. Now, the last thing on this topic is bearing edges. I, Man, it's another one of those things where if I'm playing a coated head, I can't hit a drum and go, oh, 30-degree bearing edge <laughs> yeah. or 45 degrees. Like I, I cannot do that. Can you? I mean, is it that big of a deal to you? Uh, I can give you a, a very particular experience. Um, the birch kit that I have came with very sharp bearing edges. Uh, they they were just made. That was the that was the trend. Everything was very sharp, minimal head contact, and it was too sharp. It was too, so sharp that that the head had nothing to sit on essentially. Uh. So it, I couldn't tune it. I couldn't even get a guitar tuner to register like a consistent pitch. So I had to take it back to the guy and I say, "Can you just do like a you know just light round over or do something to to even these out?" And that made all the difference in the world so the one thing i would caution is is super sharp bearing edges is not in my experience is going to be a difficult thing to maintain right but once you get into rounding it over i mean i've i can definitely hear when you get into like baseball bat roundovers i can you can hear that it just sounds gooier and and when you get out to the edge you're not getting you're not you're going to get as articulate of an edge response Right. Uh, but you know, thirty degrees, sixty degrees, forty-five, double forty-five with a slight round over, my ears can't hear it. I think too. The the other thing too is that you're usually getting, it's a combo platter. I mean, the forty-five degree bearing edges are coming on modern, focused drums, where there's so many things going on in the shell, along with the forty-five degree bearing edge, or the double forty-five that is creating this modern focused sound where. Like my broadcaster has thirty degree round over it bearing edges, but but the shells are three ply shells, and the side and there's you know tone knobs, and the whole thing is meant to give me a warm fat sound. So it's not like I've been able to say, okay, this is my kit with forty five degree bearing edges, like you did. Now I'm going to take it in and get you know full baseball about round over edges and see the difference. So um, you know I think it's just kind of it's just one little thing that can add to the vintage sound if you want it, or add to the modern sound if you want it. Yeah, as a general, I would say don't go extreme either way. Exactly. Go go yeah. with someone who can give you a slight round over cut or something, so you can you don't want it to be too sharp or too round. 